0: So Stanley once said that he used to be embarrassed because he was just a comic book writer while other people were building bridges or going on to medical careers. And then he began to realize that entertainment is one of the most important things in people's lives. Without it, they might go off the deep end. I feel that if you were able to entertain people, you're doing a good thing, he said. We lost... A giant this week who has impacted so many lives, not just through the stories he has written, but through the way he treated folks. There's one particular place that I feel like Stan, not just in his everyday life, but in his artistic life, stood above many folks in the world of entertainment. And it was his stand on bigotry and his stand on racism. And in particular, there's a a great Stan's Soapbox. For those who don't know, Stan's Soapbox was kind of his way to talk to readers outside of the actual comics story. And he talks about how to dislike a human being or an individual just because of their race or religion or the color of their skin is totally irrational, patently insane to condemn an entire race, to despise an entire nation, to vilify an entire religion. Sooner or later, we must learn to judge each other on our own merits. Sooner or later, if man is ever to be worthy of his destiny, We must fill our hearts with tolerance. For then and only then will we be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. Stan didn't have to do that. He didn't have to take a stand. He didn't have to create allegory in his work to talk about racism. But he understood that that story was our story. And that he understood at the end of the day, as he says, it is patently insane to hate someone for the color of their skin. And that is something that has stuck out with me, particularly as I've joined the Marvel family. And particularly as we talk about creators who come from a background, who talk about social justice, who tell real stories in a way, whether an allegory or straightforward directly, are giving us stories that are our lives, that we can relate to, and how Marvel was created in such a way that when you're in Marvel's New York, it's New York. When you're in Marvel's L.A., it's L.A. But one of the things that Marvel did, and in a way, the magic of Marvel was, is that the stories were written in such a way that you felt like in you were walking in Manhattan and you turned a corner that a superhero could come out at any moment. I think that is the greatest gift that Stan Lee gave us. I grew up watching the imagination of Stan Lee come to life on TV, on screen. And like many other people in my generation, waited for the st- Those little moments where Stan would make his cameo with joy because we, in some little way, were able to see the world of Marvel through his eyes. He co-created so many characters that we know and love and look up to in an ambitious way about values and morals and ethics who were not perfect which made them even more interesting. Stan Lee's career spanned decades. His stories have touched so many folks in a way that I hope that it will also span for decades more. So before we get into this week's episode of Marvel's Voices, I want to send one last shout-out To a man who, without his imagination and his laughter and his sense of humor and a little bit of snark, we wouldn't be able to talk about all the incredible stories and characters and the continuity that is the Marvel Universe. And I'm sure if he were here, he would say what I'm about to say. Face front, true believers. Marie Tamaki, who is a award-winning author of a number of books and is now part of the Marvel Universe, writing previously for She-Hulk and then currently writing now for X-23, was a guest on Marvel's Voices during New York Comic Con. So she's originally from Toronto, Canada, and she actually started her career performing essays on stage. And... As she was writing these stories, she also started branching out and doing novels and books of essays, which is kind of her sweet spot, which I love. And that is really reflected both in her work writing for Jen Walters, as well as her work now writing for Laura, aka X-23. I've actually been reading X-23 since it came out. It's really, really, really fun, although at times very sad. And for those who aren't reading it, it goes through this idea where Laura has now changed her name back to X23 because she doesn't want what happened to her to happen to anyone else. In fact, it's this part where X23, where Laura is really discovering who she is as an entity and as a person, and now has her sister Honey Badger, Gabby, which is amazing. And they are fighting against the cuckoos. And so if anybody knows the cuckoos, they are the clones of Emma Frost. And they, at a point in time, taught at Professor X's school for gifted young people. And it's this point where the themes are a lot about family, they're a lot about self-discovery, and they're a lot about what's next. You know, we're clones, now we're free. What do we do next with our lives? And these decisions where you're not a protagonist or an antagonist, all of the time. This complexity of identity, this complexity of emotions, this complexity of finding out who we are. Mariko is so very talented interweaving into superhero stories. And I really enjoy that about her writing because then she also has this gift of making these emotions so much more impactful and so much grander because these are superheroes who fight big, who live big, who sometimes in Jen Walter's case, are big, and they feel just as big. Um, and she doesn't shy away from that. I'm Angelique Roche, and this is Marvel's Voices. This is Mariko Tamaki's story. so early. I just
1: want to have that down on the recording. Uh, it I, is early. I
0: can't believe we got you in here this early. Thank you. Also, this haircut. Mm.
1: Thank you. Mm. Uh, it's funny because I was at a high school recently and you know you always want to be like I think every person who goes to a high school you regress to the age like a high school moment like you walk
0: in the doors and suddenly you you're walk in and you're, you're like,
1: like don't judge me and all these girls were like I really like your hair and I never had anyone say that to me in high school so I was like thanks I was having this discussion the other day
0: uh, about runaways yes and I was having this conversation God, about I love that comic. If I would have had that comic in high school, right. aging myself, and like been able to look at these kids and be like, but I dress like this. Right. Does that mean I'm cool? Right. I'm okay with being cool. I've never been cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I have that discussion every time I read the comics. Like, yeah, no. I would have had this as a kid. Like, It would have been a different self-image.
1: Well, yeah. And I think that is the amazing thing. I was actually talking to these high school kids about that, like how... You know, superhero stories are a way to tell, a way to tell very human stories in like a way that it just exacerbates certain things like alienation or you know just general struggles with identity and all this stuff. And it's just a way to sort of make it big. And I think *The Runaways* does that so well, of like, like who am I? Who am I in relationship to my family? Who am I in relationship to? You know, like all that stuff. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's such a great story for teens to have and for adult readers obviously yeah and you're
0: you're both from a japanese and a jewish background Ooh, right
1: i'm actually not so what okay. actually i used to perform in this troupe called and we called ourselves Japanese so my friend and i okay my friend and i my friend who was jewish and myself who was japanese had like a troupe and we described ourselves as that uh and so an one reporter once wrote a review of what we had done and described us as, described me as Jewish and Japanese. And so that is actually. So it stuck with you. So it stuck with me forever. And so now it's on my Wikipedia page too, which is hilarious. Uh, but it is, and actually, maybe I can use this as finally referencing, as a reference to, I can say this now and say, I am not Jewish. <laughs> my girlfriend Heather Gold who is a comedian is Jewish and so I do go to services and all that stuff. Now actually it's weird because now I actually do go to services. So um but my mom is actually my mom my mother's Anglican like Anglican. Like I went to the most, you know, Canadian like Christian not like born again or anything, but very much like you go to church, you sit quietly, and then you leave. I'm Catholic. I I understand all yeah. the things you
0: were saying. Yeah.
1: Where you just sit in a pew and are like, what? and you kneel, when and then you I stand. God? Yeah. And then you kneel, and then you stand. I always liked kneeling. I was always like, oh, because you have like a bench with like the padded thing. Oh yeah. I was always like, this is rad. Why can we just do this? This is great. So yes, I uh, and I I have uh, yeah a Japanese dad. So, yes, that is me.
0: I love your Instagram. I'm not (laughs) even going to lie. I was like, these pictures you were posting of your family are everything. And your dad seems like a cool guy that I want to know.
1: Yeah, my family is very cool. My mom is also very cool. I have to remember to, like, balance off the coolness that is both of my parents at all times. And my brother. Uh, Yes. I mean, I, I grew up in a family of, you know, like, to be entertaining was very crucial like the dinner table and being funny at the dinner table was important. It was like you had to compete with Entertainment, e- entertainment Tonight, which was always on in the background. So you had to be like funnier, more interesting than Entertainment Tonight.
0: That so. is not an easy task.
1: No, it is not.
0: Especially like back when With we John were growing Tesh? up. With John Tesh? Yeah. Like, like that was actually a thing. Like It was rem- a big deal
1: wow. back in the day, right? I still
0: remember the theme. It's like it's so yes. ingrained in my head that I hear it right yeah. now.
1: And I remember there was like a female uh, host, Mary something, and her legs were insured. And my mom used to always say that, you know, they insured her legs. And I was like. Always thinking my whole life, will I ever have legs that will one day need to be insured? (laughs) Also, Vanna White
0: did have her legs insured back in the gap. Yeah, I I think it was a thing to do. I think That was like a a big deal. Someone
1: was in in charge of writing press releases to say uh, whose body parts had been insured. It was the 90s, you guys. It was a really complicated time. The 90s
0: were a very, very complicated time.
1: From 91 to 99, it was a leap. (laughs) So so, is that how you ended up? being a performer
0: because that's the i think that's the other thing a lot of people don't really know about you is you actually are a performer and you write books and you do amazing comic books but like you're a performer like
1: well i started out in i think it's you know it's like the city you grew up in as an artist so i grew up in montreal uh quebec and in toronto canada or toronto ontario canada so in both of those cities were very like if you wanted to be an artist Uh, It was about going to community things, and it was about going to spoken word events and going to, like, poetry slams and going to – I say poetry slams. They were, like, lesbian poetry slams. So it's not the same thing. Look,
0: I did poetry slams. They're very different. They are very different. Yeah.
1: The level of, like, the level of uh, intensity is much more towards the sort of indigo than it is towards the sort of, like – Red. It's like a spectrum.
0: It's not what you would think of New Orlean. It's more of what you would think Water for Chocolate.
1: Yeah, it's a little more, much more that direction. So, I mean, for me, growing up as an artist, if you wanted to share your work, especially because the internet was not as much of a we place, had MySpace. That was yeah, about it. you know, or whatever. So, in order to get an audience, you had to get up on stage and read your stuff, and so that was basically where I started was open mics, and I worked. Uh, at Buddies in Bad Times Theater, which is the only—I think it's still the only queer theater in North America with its own venue. So it was like first it was open mics, and then it was doing skits and doing like actual plays and performances. But that was the way to be an artist and be a part of that community. So I, you know, started out on stage, uh, and then was always sort of writing books. But you had to sort of go to your typewriter world, and then also get up and on a mic and and do that as well. So also Mariko Tamaki, poet. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't say poet. I wouldn't say poet. I was much more the sort of like essayist in the end. I was sort of more sort of going for a Fran Lebowitz vibe. Uh, The sort of like social commentary thing was very much my I did. The two of the first uh, books I did were books of essays because I wanted to do. um, Yeah, like that sort of short form share it with a, you know, share with an audience type situation. Because I tried poetry and uh, I'm not a I'm not a poet. I'm just not. I think the thing is, is I can't internally take it seriously, even though it's a very serious art form. I, there's something in my makeup that doesn't let me really feel the poetry. And so it always comes off sarcastic. So that works off works much better for essays than for poetry.
0: I can see that. Yeah. The other, and, and, and I love the fact that, and we had this conversation kind of earlier this year at FlameCon. Yeah. This concept of understanding and being able to illustrate queerness within art forms in a yeah. way that's authentic and genuine but also isn't like making it so subtle that you you don't realize that's what you're doing like someone else doesn't realize when they're reading it that's what you're doing
1: yeah i mean i think the th- thing that I come from in terms of queerness is, you know, it's the sort of confessional, right? Like the sort of you know, sharing of your experience and emotions. It's very, like, very personal stories. Like, that's what the lesbian open mic is. Like, let me tell you the story of my last breakup. Like, it's also very immediate. Like, you have a girl who gets up on stage, and she has a notebook, and she's like, I just wrote this on the bus. It's the story of this girl who just broke up with me two days ago. And you're like, what? You just wrote it, like, just now, and you're sharing it? So that idea of that immediacy is, like, super part of, like, queer narratives for me Uh, and then you know also uh, because I got to work for Buddies in Bad Times Theatre and got to do other places seeing how people have translated that into something more symbolic so sort of balancing off something that is you know more about the sort of aesthetics and stuff like that that go with queerness versus the sort of immediate personal experience of being queer. Uh, So yeah I mean I'm very lucky in that I have always been surrounded by amazing queer artists that have inspired me to also, you know, do, you know, new things. Like, I mean, even when I was reading, um, and I can't remember the name of it, but Molly Ostertag did this, like, little mini comic recently about the sort of huntress who discovers her sort of new identity for herself. And it's incredibly, it's such a queer story, but it's very... It's very much like a sort of queer fairy tale that doesn't really ever mention – it's not about sexuality. It's about something magical, some identity sort of beyond that. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Like what – like even what the new queer aesthetic in comics is, is – you know, like when I look at Jen Bartel's work, I'm like, that is – I mean, versus what I came up with, which was much more like, you know, Sharpie on paper, this very sort of black and white thing, to see what Jen does with this beautiful technicolor – you know this like uh Lisa Frank, you know, realness, popping off the page. I love that. So why comics? You like you've obviously been out there. You've done
0: stuff with your cousin, yep. you've done um novels and and short stories and essays and all these amazing things. Why comics?
1: I just really love the I mean, I first of all I love collaborating. So part of my history as an artist especially is mostly working in theater where it's like multiple people you know, coming together to tell a story together. I really love that process. And also, I just think as a medium, I love the combination of words and pictures in terms of what it allows you to do, like as a storyteller, you know, sort of like the sort of showing and not telling part of things. I love contradiction. I love when you have sort of multiple narratives happening on a page where you have, a really serious caption and a really, you know, like tragedy and comedy, like those two things. So the layers of comics is something I just like adore. And I think it is, you know, it's constantly a new challenge. Like actually for me, because I started off in graphic novels, the first time I ever wrote like a series, I was like, oh, how many pages? And they're like, oh, you only have 20 pages. And I was like, 20 pages? And they're like, yeah, I have to do 20 pages six times. And I had no concept of how to do that. I was like, well, how does that? So I basically just took a story and then, like, cut it up. And my editor was like, yeah, you can't do that because you have to enjoy the issue. So then to figure out, like, how to write, like, episodically, right? Like, how to write four episodes that fit into a larger arc where each individual piece can stand on its own but has to also be able to be read as, like, a full trade in a way that, like, doesn't feel like, four things, like, kind of stuck together. So that was, like, a, you know, I had no idea that that was another challenge that I was going to come up to in comics. I'm constantly learning new things. I love always working with new people. Like, working with Juan Cabal on X-23, he's a genius. He sends me the weirdest emails where he's like, "Rico, I have this idea. It's, you know, just tell me if you hate it, but I think I want to do this thing. And I'm just like, as long as I don't have to change my story so that you could do your weird thing, yeah, man, let's just do it. Like, this whole kind of parallel dream universe that's happening in this series is basically his um his take on what I what I was uh, suggesting originally. So yeah, like I love that part of it. Yeah.
0: The dream plane is actually kinda cool. I was like, where? oh oh.
1: Yeah. Well because okay. also and I mean one of the greatest uh notes I ever got, I can't remember who gave it to me. But they were like, make sure that you're that the story is using this medium like don't write a story that could be in any other medium make sure that it's a comic and the things that you can do in comics are something that you're considering and then like also push those things like what can you do in this particular format or you know what do people expect in a format and how can you move sort of like in a different direction um and I was just like oh yeah that's right like make sure it's a comic Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Um, I mean, I knew that I was probably going to be a writer. I knew that I probably wasn't going to have any choice. You know, it's like, I think at some point, it's like you look at little kids who are just like (laughs) slightly maladjusted. And you're like, you're probably going to be a writer. (laughs) Like, that's probably your fate. I'm so sorry to tell you. Like, I think it's just... Like, a certain way of dealing with the world and, like, encountering the world, which is not necessarily the same thing as a reader. Like, I think that there are some people who are readers and want to sort of, like, absorb books. But I think there's something about being a writer that's about your life is kind of like a documentary where you're sort of narrating things in your head and kind of, you know, constantly reassessing the world around you for its meaning and for, you know, what you could... Use it for. Well,
0: and then Uh, there's always like a story, right? Yeah. I I remember the first time I started writing poetry. Right. uh, I, I got kicked out of class. For some various reason, I'm yeah. sure it was because I was. To anyway, I'm sure yeah. I was sitting there reading something. I was probably reading a novel and not reading what I was supposed to read. Right. And I I stuck it to the library because that's what not bad kids who get kicked out of class do. Yeah. That's what yep. awkward nerds do. You you're like, you're kicking me out of to class, class.
1: I'm gonna go sit in the periodical section, man. <laughs>
0: doing it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I sat there and I started copying poetry books. I just, right. And eventually, I was like, oh, I could do this. Right. And I started writing my own stuff and you just have this moment where I hate to say you coexist in your own little world, but yeah, yeah, you really do. It's like some people have theme music in their head. Some people literally like, Oh yeah, I hear the dialogue. I don't don't know what they're saying, but, no, she's mad about something. Right. You have no idea what actually is going on, but in your head there is this yeah. narrator who is doing it and I never thought about that, but yeah.
1: I wonder if all writers have trouble sleeping because you can't turn that part of your brain off.
0: It's like so that it's like
1: just stop thinking of things, just go to sleep. It's very difficult. And especially because like you know, when you're like freelance and you're writing a lot all the time and you're constantly having to come up with stories. I feel like my sleep over the past couple of years is totally denigrated because it's just like you're like okay, turn it off. Okay, stop. Just like stop thinking about stuff. But I feel like it's I mean, it's kind of amazing in some ways because I feel like I'm can't stop thinking of stuff now and it's so great to have so many avenues for like just sort of trying out all these things that you're thinking of all the time.
0: Do you ever like pop up and you're like, "Oh, I thought I was asleep, but I'm not asleep anymore.
1: Oh, God. Yes. You're like, no, I'm just thinking. <laughs> Even when I'm dreaming sometimes, I know I'm like in my dreams. I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that. Oh, I that's literally. creepy. I
0: popped up this morning. I was like, I have an idea.
1: Yeah. Paper. Yeah. And well, I'm- my phone, like in my notes section in my phone is just like idea. And then just like, so I can just like my search engine, right? Like idea. All these wackadoodle things come up from like various... You know, because it's like your brain takes all these like movies that you're watching. Your brain is like Brooklyn Nine Nine, uh, Wizard of Oz, whatever else, and it's like idea. That's how your that's how your brain works when you're like constantly. And it's like even it makes it like almost impossible to just absorb art, yeah. Because suddenly there are a billion more stories in your head and a billion questions.
0: Because I think that's the other thing. If you sit there and you really look at stuff, you're like, huh, what is she thinking? Why did she do that? What made her into that person?
1: And it's funny because, I mean, you know, you go on social media and people are like, why did you do this? Or why did she? Because they always talk about you. They ask you, why did Moriko Tamaki do this? And you're like, honestly, A, I can't remember. B, you know, it's like there are things that have like really intense meaning for me that I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, that means this. And it's connected to this. And there's other things where it's like, oh, that's just what I'm super interested in. I just like to name drop. This thing, because it's interesting to me. Et voila.
0: What is your favorite thing to write about?
1: Oh, what was I... Okay, so I was at the school uh, in Novato recently, and somebody was like, all of your stories are coming-of-age stories. So he was like, what's that about? And I was like, okay, here's this like super nerdy answer <laughs> to this question, which is that I am like sort of like a amateur academic as well. And I did a master's in women's studies, which I'm sure some, yes, like will tell everybody things that they think they already know about me, but it's really mostly just reading a lot of books. Um, And just this idea of that identity is something that you do all the time, every day. Nobody is essentially anything, right? You're not essentially a woman or a man There are various things that you have collectively over the years put into your performance of who you are that you, you know, curate and think about and then do, which everybody everywhere is doing all the time. And that that process of doing that thing, of doing who you are and the sort of struggle when that person doesn't make sense and when it sort of hits up against various obstacles in society or, you know, internal obstacles like that is the thing that I want to write about all the time. Like, how do you do you all the time? And what does you come up against in society? Like, the performance of being popular versus the performance of being, like, unpopular. Like, things like that are things that I'm fascinated by.
0: Where do you think that stems from? Because that's, like, a really... Because it's not that it's, like, it's really interesting because everyone has to do it.
1: Everybody is doing it. That's the thing, right? Like, I think the thing is, is that when I was in high school... You know, there were some people who just so easily seemed to be doing this thing that was completely acceptable. Like there were some people who just had such an ease with being a girl. And I was like, how are you all doing this? I just can't. I just don't understand. Like I'd be like, I'm just putting all these braids in my hair. Is that not what we're doing? Like I completely always misread <laughs> what someone was supposed to do. Like people would be like, well, you're supposed to wear this sweatshirt. And I'd be like, OK. And I would go and get like what I thought was the sweatshirt. And they'd be like, what are you doing? that's not the sweatshirt. Oh, my God. So I was always, like, missing the mark. And part of that is probably queerness, too. Like, you're like, everybody else seems to be getting this. I don't. And I think it makes you sort of like a natural anthropologist of whatever everybody else is doing. Like, what everyone else is just not thinking about is something that you have to figure out all the time. It's fascinating because... It
0: is literally the quintessential reason why people love people watching. Yeah. They just don't know that's why they love people watching. It's this process where you go through every image that comes in your head, but you are able to take it one step further and there's almost an appreciation for it.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's probably why, uh, you know, a lot of the superheroes that I write are a little introspective. Because that to me is, like, my She-Hulk is much more contemplative maybe because that's... She does a lot of thinking. She thinks a lot about a lot of things because... But she's a
0: lawyer. She should be doing a lot of thinking.
1: Yeah, she is thinking. But also, I mean, the thing that I've really liked about writing X-23 is that you have the sort of two contrasting where you have Laura who is kind of like not talking but is sort of thinking through all these things. Mm -hmm. And then you have another character who's just like, what are you thinking about? Because Gabby's just like, where are you going? We're going to do this thing? I'm going to have pancakes now. She just, like, asks everything, right? She's just like, I don't have any problem with who I am. You can stab me, and I'm going to be okay. So I'm kind of just here to ask why. You know, like, what's going on? But also pancakes. But also pancakes.
0: I really appreciated the pancakes, by the way. Yeah. I love pancakes.
1: I love, too. My friend Carolyn Taylor uh, in Canada has this thing uh, that she started called just pancakes for the table. So when you're at brunch... You're just like, let's just get pancakes for the table. It's something I do all the time now, and it's it's such a grand gesture. <laughs> it's such a when you're ordering food to be like, and just pancakes for the table. Yes, pancakes for the table. Uh, so I can't I can't take credit for that, but I it's one of my favorite, uh, one of my more enjoyed uh, inventions is that. So you've moved out to
0: Canada. You're now in Cali.
1: I am in Cali. Yes.
0: That's a difference.
1: It's very different. Uh, I mean, I'm actually really lucky because I sort of happened upon, there's just this incredible comics community where I live, you know? Like, I live in this world of, like, you know, freelance comic book people who just sit around and draw. Actually, the problem is that most of the friends I have there are artists, so they're like, come and work with us. And I'm like, you're going to draw. I have to write. So you can talk, but I have to, like, sit here and, like, figure out what's going to happen in the next panel. Um so, yeah, it's become – I think it's like it's my home now, you know? Like now I sort of like don't understand cold and I don't know how to dress for like winter – I don't have winter boots anymore. So I feel like that's it. Like the day that I gave up my Sorrells, I was like, I guess that's it. Did you did
0: you like trade them in for flip-flops? Like what, what happened?
1: Well, I'm not a flip-flop wearer. Uh, oh, okay. But I just uh, – I know. I just can't. I mean I just cannot. So, yes. I just – yeah, I think I just – they just sort of drifted away I think my mom donated them actually to somewhere. But, yeah, they're just sort of gone now. Wow. So what do you have to have to write?
0: Like what is like the ideal, I'm about to sit down, i got to get this done, writing atmosphere for you?
1: Well, it depends. Because for, for comics, it's like multiple stages. There's like just sitting down and conceptualizing, which I generally do with just like a notebook and a pen and kind of wandering around. I go to the grocery store And I talk to myself. So that's, like, the ideal environment for me to, like, write the sort of basic concept. Uh, And then paneling also is, like, a notebook-pen situation for me. Actually, now that I write for comics, I use, like, pen and paper way, way more. Because it's such a, like, you know, bunch of ideas on the page situation. Just, like, writing down a bunch of words and stuff like that as opposed to, like, paragraphs on a page. Uh, And then uh, mostly for Marvel, I need... My Trent Reznor uh, best hits soundtrack, it's usually somewhere between like the B-52s and Nine Inch Nails is where that is where I sit. <laughs> I, I go B-52s for like the light stuff and then I go Nine Inch Nails. Like She-Hulk was written basically to Downward Spiral. That's what I listen to all the time and just go to that dark, dark, dark place. Yeah.
0: What are you listening to for X twenty
1: three? Actually, uh, it depends. When I am writing, just the sort of general like light stuff, I have like a whole complicated mixtape of like a bunch of different things. Um, also, I really love um, the Man on Wire soundtrack; is really really good for like sort of serious stuff. Uh, the Social Network, which is again Trent Reznor soundtrack, is really good for like writing serious, intense things. Sometimes I'll find I'll be like listening to Nine Inch Nails when I'm writing something light and I'll see it come out in the dialogue. I'm like, well, this is pretty deep. All right. Maybe we just need to switch up the soundtrack a little bit because we're in a Nine Inch Nails place and so we need to be in more of like a Slater-Kinney place. So I'll like switch it up.
0: So I love what you did. And we've had this conversation about um, the the realism that you're able to put into the story of she hulk and this is concept of you have this superhero right who at one point in time was literally like all the way over to the right side almost tony stark out there right diva taking life by the reins partying every night and now you're like so she's also human right which means she would deal with something like she's superhuman yeah but that doesn't negate feelings and emotions and trauma
1: Yeah, if anything, it just makes them bigger, right? Like, so when she is is at her best, she is larger than life, able to do incredible things. She's a hero. And the idea, I think, is, yeah, you can take that same scale to the other side of that person's life. So when they're destroying bad guys, you know, they're unbelievable and, like, you know, supernova – And then when something falls apart or something doesn't, you know, something, they lose something in their lives. It's like they go to a a pit that's a little bigger. Like, I mean, really, when I was writing that comic, we just, uh, uh, Mark, my editor, and I talked a lot about, like, just, like, how big her emotions would be. And as much as, you know, when she has these positive feelings, she can do super things. When she has these negative feelings, it, like, takes over everything. It's like an explosion. Yeah. Like a mental explosion which I then paired with like cooking videos because that's what I do when I'm having like a mentally bad day is I just watch the Great British Bake Off over and over again. So I was like... Which Jen also does. She Jen, does Jen
0: is watching cooking videos. Yes. I, I was
1: reading the first couple panels the first time and I was like, cooking video? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because Nico Leon, who's the illustrator, because we talked a lot about her apartment and so if you look in the background, you can see that at some point she's also tried to make stuff but it didn't work out. And she's kind of abandoned things. So if you look in the deep background, you'll see, like, these, like, little, like... Experiments. Experiments. Yes. <laughs> I think I made it into the finals. We talked a lot. He and I talked a lot about her apartment as kind of, like, a manifestation of what's going on for her. So, like, the idea that her apartment is made for somebody who's, like, gigantic She-Hulk. And now she's smaller gen, so everything is, like, a little too big yeah. for her. And all her clothes are a little too big for her because in her like, you know, regular human body, they kind of like hang off of her.
0: Yeah, because when she's like perfectly in She-Hulk, like it's their form fitting. Yeah, exactly.
1: So she's wearing these pajamas that are basically like what was like once a yoga outfit (laughs) that's now like this massive like t-shirt and track track pants.
0: For me, like, so we're reading I'm reading X23 right now, like the story of Laura and how because obviously X twenty three has gone through a lot. Yes, um, has oh changed names. It's a complicated uh, history. Very, man. very complicated yes. clone history here, and I think there is there is something new in this story. Um, when you're dealing with the clones of Wolverine versus the clones of Emma Frost, which, oh, good God. The clones great of Emma Frost. Great characters, though.
1: Such great characters. Such good characters. When I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. I was rereading, the, I think I was rereading the new X-Men, and I was just like, oh, my God. This is amazing. I love this. Like The this, one in
0: five that becomes the one in four, which yeah, is now the one in three, three, but then
1: becomes the one in four. But then, like, you know, that they've had, like, you know, various iterations of, like, coming back. And, yeah, I mean, I think now also this kind of notion of, good guy, bad guy. It's like, well, it's complicated. Like, I think now, you know, this idea of like, who ends up on what side, it is more of kind of a freelance situation where you're like, well, right now we're working for you guys. But ultimately, we're working for ourselves. Like that the the center of it is like, I look out for me, I look out for my sisters, my family. And then how that kind of works out when you're making decisions.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because when I read your writing, the characters that I love the most is that if you pulled out every single one of their superpowers, right they couldn't ninja kick. They're not a super spy. They don't have x-ray vision or marksmanship. It's still a story about a character that you could place in any good story. Yeah, and that's i it's because when I look at Laura, I go, okay. So this is someone who hasn't really ever had a real family. Right. Who's now trying to reestablish having family. Right. And trying to trust. Right. But also trying to not let her life of disappointments like allow her to be vulnerable and so she becomes vulnerable with her sister gabby right sister gabby yes um i know
1: people are always like it's her sister and i'm like oh, i mean it's sister's a complicated word in the Marvel universe very complicated when you deal with clones they are really closely related <laughs> they are clones of each other so honey
0: badger which i love honey badger is such a good name i
1: know it's awesome
0: I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but Hundry Badger goes through this whole moment where, you know, they're together. She's like the kid's sister who's like still more, still more vulnerable, right? Like has this thirst for life. And there's this whole conversation about birthdays.
1: Right. Why
0: birthdays?
1: I mean, to me, that was like. I was thinking about this idea of sisters and this idea of like very human things that would apply but not apply to clones. So you're a family, but you're not really a family. And I was thinking about all those sort of like very trademark things that go with the experience of being a human. Of course, a birthday is huge, right? Like that is like the sort of central thing that identifies you as you is that you have a birthday. So I thought, yeah, technically they would have a birthday. I mean, they would technically have a day that you're born, but it would be, you know, complicated depending on what kind of clone you are. <laughs> I mean, there's always a gray area around how that actually comes about. Uh, so I just thought, you know, would it mean anything to Laura to have a birthday, especially if it was the day that she was like, well, this is sort of a day that's been sort of identified as my birthday, but not really. And this idea of Gabby kind of wanting that for Gabby, it's NBD. Gabby's like, well... I mean, come on, it would be super fun if we did this together and it would be great. But Laura is sort of hedging on what does it mean to kind of step into these human things? Like, what will it mean for other decisions she makes and what does it mean for who she is? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I kind of like that idea that, you know, it's like like the things that you just decide are important and you hold on to even though there's no real reason. Like, there's no reason for her not to tell Gabby her birthday, but she just decides that she's not
0: going to. And it, it's it's really interesting in your writing
1: that there's always this theme of processing? Well, it's like there's this theme of, I mean, there's many themes which other people have said to me run through my work. I mean, this idea of like the sort of said and unsaid, like what you can and cannot say is obviously like a big theme in my work. Uh, Which may or may not have something to do with the fact that I'm Japanese Canadian, and (laughs) it's like not talking about stuff is like a a hallmark of my family. Um, But also, uh, yeah, this idea of repercussions, like that repercussions are there. It's like this whole thing of you know you have this alien invasion that that would affect a city to have gone through an alien invasion of some sort, right? So the idea that there are people who have Yeah, like the ripple effects of all of these actions. Um, And, you know, with the cuckoos, it's great because you can have various people like they're all sort of doing this as one. But then they all have very different notions of what the like, you know, two of them are like, it's fine. Let's just do this. There's no you know question or choice. And one of them is like, I don't feel really good about this. So that there's kind of various opinions amongst them. Yeah. Also, just their outfits are so cool. I, look, <laughs> I love their outfits. I don't.
0: I don't think I. I ever believe that I would like the cuckoos, but right. I actually am like, yo, I have two sisters. Yeah. If if I had a chance to save one of them, I would at least think about it twice.
1: Yeah. Like their decisions are not like our decisions. Their decisions aren't like, do I need a new bike or do I not need a new bike? Their decisions are like. Do I open up this fissure in in the world's, you know, understanding of matter and take advantage of that? Or do I just, you know, sit here and give more lectures on Cerebro? Like, you know, which one of those do you do? Obviously, one is much more interesting.
0: Much more interesting of a story, to say the least.
1: Yes. And I have to say, I give, uh, I think that not enough credit goes to the editors here, and I I have um, Annalise and Jordan, and they have, like, they're such an incredible sounding board. And actually, the really crucial thing, I think, about editors working for Marvel is that, because a mar- an editor working with you on a book is just, like, stepping into u- your universe and saying, like, okay, here's what I see you're doing. Here's how, like, I'm understanding it someone from the outside. I'm going to help you kind of work this so that it's, you know, working a little bit better. But with Marvel, they also have this responsibility of, like, being a representative of the massive Marvel universe and all that that entails and bringing all of that information and knowledge to you. So helping you make your story make sense within that um, and also, like, helping you with the thing that is your story. Like, I don't know how they do it. That's uh, it is a thing to aspire to. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, well, an issue 165 of this series. And you're like, oh, my God. I'm like, I don't even remember my own phone number sometimes. And you know, you know what happened to Wolverine like, you know, 20 years ago. Like, it's it's intense. Wow. Yeah. So rapid fire questions. Okay. This is the fun. No
0: trick questions. All right. Favorite superhero.
1: Currently, I mean, right now it's probably like Laura and Gabby. Because I'm working on them right now. I mean, it's it's usually whoever I'm working on. I'm very that. I'm very like, you're my best friend now. And then I like leave and I'm like, now you're my best friend. <laughs> it's like that. Uh, what is your superpower? Observation. Yeah. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, I would like to fly. I would like to fly. I think it would be very convenient and nice. To be able to just be like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to take a cap. I would save so much money because I would never take a cap. Honey Badger versus Squirrel Girl. Who wins? Oh, I don't know. I think Gabby is so fearless and would never stop. I think it would be Honey Badger. Mm. These are things that we'll have to find out one yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully,
0: they'll be fighting on the same side.
1: Yeah. But- no, I mean, if it, yes, obviously. Unless one of them was, like, possessed by some crazy thing.
0: I couldn't imagine that Honey Badger would be possessed by anything. (laughs) Exactly. You just have to read X-23 to find out why that would be a thing.
1: Uh, Yes. I'm, I'm
0: I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the series.
1: That's it. Yeah, thanks, man. That Jewish thing is so funny. I'm so glad you had a chance to say that. It's funny because
0: it's just not true. Right? It's just one of those things that just has followed you, and just never gone away. Yeah, and it's like I don't,
1: there's nothing I'm just saying. nothing wrong so with
0: it, know. but it's also yeah. It's an so one of the things I took away from the conversation is that she really loves cooking videos, like really and truly loves cooking videos, and I think that is amazing. I really do, and she does a really good job in integrating things that are real into the characters that she writes without forcing them into that reality. And I really appreciate that because anyone who has read her version of She-Hulk knows that Jen Walters is kind of processing her life through watching cooking videos. And I I think that's just such a, a clever integration of what would a real person do and how would a real person behave as they're processing through trauma. And if you want to check out Mariko Tamaki's work, you can check out X-23 It's on shelves right now. She and Wonka Ball have done a really incredible job and create a very fun story. So it's definitely worth the read. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.